Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome in the Hang Time Podcast. Seku Smith here at headquarters in Atlanta. My main man, John Schumann, he of the GM Survey in New Jersey at his hideout. Shoe, we know an NBA season is cranked up when the results from the NBA.com GM Survey come in. And who better to talk to about the GM Survey than our friend David Griffin, former GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers and a current analyst on NBA TV. Griff, how you doing, sir? Really well, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Shoot, since you were the wizard behind the curtain on the NBA.com GM survey, I know it was released early this week. And if you haven't already, make sure you go and read all 49 questions and answers on that NBA.com GM survey. You'll be ready to choke Shoe out on a couple of them, even though he didn't answer them. He just poses the questions. (laughs) (laughs) But it's pretty awesome to me to get a lay of the land from a GM's perspective or whatever front office personnel, you know, whether it's a team president, whatever, that's making these selections. I don't think that there's a whole lot of discrepancy in the answers when we're talking about certain categories, certainly the predictions, the finals, 2019 finals predictions. Most everybody is going to be in the herd picking that same team. And that's the Golden State Warriors, of course, two-time defending champs. Griff, the question I want to ask you about the survey in general, though, is when you look at these responses, how much of this is the copycat league that people always talk about and kind of that herd mentality I mentioned where, you know, if the prevailing wisdom is this, you get a higher number of responses that match that. And how much of it is really independent thought and maybe somebody going against the grain and having their own way of looking at the league? Well, I think a lot of it depends on who it is that's turning it in. You know, I think some people get so used to playing things close to the vest and everything is so clandestine for them. They don't really want to reveal anything that would be out in the ether that somebody could ever say, hey, by the way, just so you know, Daryl Morey thinks this guy is the MVP. So some people don't want that out there. So I think sometimes people will go along with what they think prevailing wisdom is just because it's less dangerous and it makes you less vulnerable. I do think there are some people that really enjoy being the iconoclast who has a thought that's unique and different. And again, it's unique to each general manager. But I do think you can see the impact of, like, groupthink. Mm-hmm. In one of the questions that I thought stood out the most was, look how far down Minnesota's fallen in a year in the rankings in terms of where people expect them to finish. And then look at the value of Carl Anthony Towns relative to last year. 29% of the respondents last year said he was one of the players they would want to build around. And 0% of the respondents said that this year. <laughs> So the impact of the Jimmy Butler situation upon Minnesota and Carl is pretty pronounced, obviously. And it was 48% two years ago. He won that category two years ago at 48%. So he went from 48% to 29% to zero. And he's still only 22 years old. It's not like, (laughs) and he is younger than everybody that got an answer or got a response on that question this season. So John, 29% of 30 is how many votes? We're talking... I'm not great at math. No, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Is that like three? It's in the nine or ten range. Ten range. Okay. I think when you look at going from 48 to 29, 
I can explain that with just getting to watch him for another year, right? It's more to go on. But to go from 29% to zero after he had what, by all accounts, is an incredibly strong offensive season, that speaks to both people's concern about him on the defensive end, but also it speaks to all of the noise around that franchise becomes pervasive within other front offices. And so to Seku's point, groupthink absolutely impacts this along the way. And I think that's an area that's certainly a question set where you can see that impact. Griff and Shu, for both you guys, and John, you've been doing this for so many years. I think you've probably gotten into a rhythm of what questions you ask. Griff, when you look at the survey, what's the question that isn't on there that we should be asking that maybe we need to be digging into from a front office standpoint? Like, what do you think is out there on the horizon that we maybe haven't dug into yet? That's a really good question. I haven't spent enough time with it, like in the last year or so, to really give you an unequivocal, like, mm-hmm. gosh, you know, the answer I really would have liked to have given is this. The, the one thing I think really stands out for me is In the area of coaching, I think it's fascinating to think about what you might get in terms of who's the next assistant coach to be elevated to the bench. Mm -hmm. When you look at assistant coaches, who has the biggest impact in games? The question about which is the best assistant coach in the NBA? Well, that's a completely different question than which assistant coach is eventually going to make the best head coach. And I think that's a really interesting one because, honestly, I think hiring a head coach is the most difficult thing we do from a front office perspective. So if I could get some crowdsourcing help on doing that, I would want it as a general manager. (laughs) In that vein, Griff, there's one question I've been sort of upset at myself for the last two weeks. Two years ago, there was a question, you know, which new coach or relocated coach will make the biggest impact on his new team? Last year, I took it out because there were no new or relocated coaches. Everybody was still in the same job. And I accidentally forgot to put it back in this year. So my question for you is what new coach in a new spot do you think is going to make the biggest impact? And maybe there's two different categories to that. There's the coaches that are in sort of win now situations, Nick Nurse, Dwayne Casey, Budenholzer, versus the coaches that are in start from scratch and build a foundation for something two or three years down the line. Yeah, and I think the same thing could be said about assistants, right? I mean, there's the possibility that an assistant moved from one situation to another, and based on how much is going to be asked of him in a given situation, there's obviously a time Jeff Bizdelic would have been the answer to this question. And he would be the absence on a coaching bench right now that I think could have the most profound impact on a team, and he was an assistant and coach. So I think there's a lot of impact that's being seen by assistants, by skills development coaches, et cetera, that, and again, this isn't a knock on the survey in any way. It's just, those are questions that I would like the answer to from a front office perspective, because a lot of those things go unseen. Griff, I'm looking at the survey and the one that really took me back This idea that the mood around the league is that Brad Stevens is now head and shoulders best coach in the league. And I'm going, that's a wee bit disrespectful to a guy like Greg Popovich. We don't have a situation where people are picking Joel Embiid as the best player over LeBron and KD because we know he has this high ceiling but has yet to really put his hands on some iron or win anything significant that would dictate him being in that top spot. And this, again, no disrespect to Brad Stevens, but it feels like to me he's getting anointed as the best coach in the league when there are other guys like Pop who've been doing this for so long. How could you pick anybody over Pop? Yeah, you know, and it's funny, and there's a really big disconnect between front offices and their votes and the coaches. 
I mean, Brad Stevens was left off of ballots for <laughs> Coach of the Year last year. Yeah. Which in and of itself is asinine. But I think it's a reaction from the coaching community of, look how much love this guy gets, and to your point, how much have they achieved? And while I am an enormous Brad Stevens fan, in fact, I doubt there are very many bigger (laughs) Brad Stevens fans than I am, I think your point about Greg Popovich is a fantastic one because he's done it for so long. Steve Kerr being as far down the list as he was in terms of percentages. Now, he was tied with Mike D'Antoni for third, But Steve Kerr gets absolutely no love for coaching that team and for doing what it takes to work with the egos and blend it all together and make it work. It's an incredibly difficult job, just as Ty Lue never got any love and respect from the front offices. And yet if you asked coaches, and I know this because I've seen this conversation take place among many coaches sitting together in Las Vegas, if you ask coaches which head coach makes the best in-game offensive adjustments, Ty Lue's name comes up very, very quickly. But the front offices aren't revealing any of that because they're not in the war room every day with their coaches <laughs> trying to draw up plays to stop teams. I remember vividly Dwayne Casey looking down at Ty Lu in a conference finals game, or a, rather a second round game, looking down at Ty Lu coming out of a timeout and almost going zone half the time because he's like, you're not going to embarrass me with one of those quick hitters out of a timeout. <laughs> so Ty's so good at it, he's in coach's head. <laughs> But he gets no love whatsoever from the front office. And I found that to be really, really interesting. And I think just as Steve Kerr is somewhat hamstrung by the greatness of his roster, Ty Lue was hamstrung by the greatness of LeBron James. I think the thing I'm most excited to see in the NBA is after this season, these questions about head coaches, will Ty Lue start to get some of the respect he deserves? Yeah, that's a great point. We're going to find out about Ty Lue this year, aren't we? I mean... (laughs) I don't disagree with anything you said, and I distinctly remember uh, you guys running that LeBron at the high post play for like eight straight scores or something to that effect in in that Toronto series, and Dwayne Casey just you know not knowing what to do with it because there was just so many options and he could never guard all five. I also agree with the Kerr point. Like if Popovich is going to be dethroned, why isn't it by the guy that's won three of the last four championships? Because if you look at this question, the best head coach, I think in the past has been very reactionary in that like if you go back 10, 15 years ago when the Lakers won the championship, Phil Jackson was the best head coach on the next GM survey. And when the Spurs won the championship, Popovich was the the best head coach on the next GM survey. So the Kerr absence is is interesting, but obviously, like you said, he's hamstrung by how much talent he has. And definitely we're going to learn about Ty Lue this year, I think. Well, and it's funny because if you were willing to give him any credit at all and you separated LeBron and the greatness of LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin from Ty Lue, he took over in the middle of a year. And he won a championship. (laughs) That alone is almost unheard of. I think Pat Riley is really the only precedent that existed for that. So when you're talking about what he was able to achieve, it's fine to say that it was all LeBron. It's fine (laughs) to say that it was all Kyrie. But it wasn't a little bit, Ty Lue. Yeah. Yeah. LeBron, though, is the ultimate sort of trump card on the floor like you can put him in a a lot of different positions so he gives you a lot of different options and you can surround him with different personnel but other coaches have tried and failed in that regard as well in the past so it's fascinating to me what you said john i think is a hundred percent right we called him cheat code so adding (laughs) lebron to any equation is literally the equivalent of a human cheat code 
he makes everything easier in terms of your on-the-court execution. And at the same time in the survey, 60% of the people that responded said LeBron is the one who forces the most adjustments, that you have to game plan the most for LeBron. 60%, but only 30% said he was MVP. (laughs) How does that make any sense? If I have to change what I do to stop you, and I don't have to change what I do to stop someone else, how are they more valuable than you are? It's a fascinating thing to me. It really is. This whole survey, too, is interesting. I, I was making fun of it on Twitter. Not the survey, but the responses. The, the GMs have clearly bought into positionless basketball because they got the same guy you know, listed at two and three positions. And I understand this notion that a guy could be a small forward and a, and a power forward because he splits his minutes there. But it, it's things like that that make me wonder about the, the front office community, Griff. <laughs> and just how different the lens is from different places based on the personnel you have on your own roster. I was thinking about this. How different is your calculus when you have a LeBron, when you have that cheat code, as compared to when you don't? You know, what you value as a front office or as a GM, what you think is more important, you know, than maybe another factor, what you think team building entitles or entails based on what kind of season you've had or what kind of team you are. I can't imagine, you know, when you look at starting a franchise, the number of different options you could, I wouldn't been surprised to have 10 different guys listed under that question. If you're starting a franchise today, who do you start with? And then you look at it and Giannis wins the category at 30%. Is If you're a GM, Griff, right now, is that who you look at and say that's the guy that you build around going forward for the next 10 years? Again, so in this category, I thought one of the most telling responses in the whole survey was where LeBron ranked in that survey. He's 33 years old, and you've still got an enormous amount of the respondents picking LeBron James. I think it speaks to the incredible durability he's had. I think it speaks to the fact that he got better last year from a shooting perspective in a way that was staggering, I think, to the rest of the NBA. He's still getting better. You know, he still cares so much about the game that he's addressing weaknesses each offseason. I think the fact that he got 17% of the votes at his age was staggering You know, for me personally, when I look at it, one of the things that I I really care the most about is, do you make other people better? With the exception of Giannis and Anthony Davis, everyone else on the list is either a veteran who's proven they make people better, or in the case of Joel Embiid, makes people better, but he doesn't have the skill set of availability. In answering this question, if you spent enough time with it, you could start to put demerits next to every name that's in the top five for different reasons, age, health, lack of a jump shot, don't make people better. It's really, really difficult to do that. And I think what happens is when you're asked that question and you just sort of answer it off the cuff, your response is different than if you were sitting down and doing a really long, mindful examination of your options. Right. Anthony Davis would be my number one if Anthony hadn't had a league-leading number of x-rays during every game. <laughs> That's meaningful to me if I'm building a team because it implies a fragility mm-hmm. that in your best player you can't have. And so it's it's interesting. This is a really difficult category for me because when I look at the answers, I'm, I'm not sure I necessarily agree. Mm-hmm. 
but I also would have to confess that I don't have a better answer in mind right off the top of my head just because I haven't spent that much time really examining what it looks like. But you could make a compelling argument for several names that are not on the list at all, I think. Right. Shu, I'm curious in terms of what surprises you when you get the results back. You see them before everybody else. What one category had a response that stuck out to you in handing out the GM survey and then collecting them? It's a good question. I will go to that that same question about starting a franchise with mm-hmm. one player. I was keeping an eye on Embiid, and he, he only got one vote. And it was like one of the last two or three ones that I, I sort of entered into my spreadsheet or whatever. And mm-hmm. that, I'm not cluing anybody in. I did them in sort of a, for sort of a random <laughs> order anyway. But I was wondering, like, oh, is Embiid going to come up in this question? And I kept, you know, I kept filling him out. And I filled out, you know, entered 26 or 27 of them. And he wasn't there. And I was like, because I just see him as the potential of him as a just a dominant force on both ends of the floor is there and he is only 24 years old so on the list he's the second youngest of the guys that got votes older only Antetokounmpo right so I was just like wondering like is he going to come up because or has it has did one year of relative health erase the injury issues with him and obviously it hasn't but I'll be very curious to see if he has another healthy year this year if he is if he doesn't sort of vault up the top of the list just because of the fact that he is a two-way player and he's a matchup problem for any team in the league when he's healthy. Um, the MVP thing was was interesting to me just because there's just so many options. And like I had no, I have no idea. Like if you ask me right now who's going to be the MVP, I have no idea just because you're looking for a yeah. guy that's one on a top three or four team in their conference, and two is just a, a dominant player or just sort of head and shoulders above everybody else on his team. Arden didn't necessarily fill that second category last year because, you know, they were a pretty deep team and obviously had Chris Paul with him. But Chris Paul's injuries helped him there. But like LeBron as an MVP candidate, okay, but how high are the Lakers going to finish in the West? You know, like, is that going to be high enough for him? Or you can just look at the maybe you're going to look at the win differential from the Lakers last season to this season and the Cavs last season to this season. We said it before on this podcast that the Cavs, when LeBron left, in 2010 suffered the biggest winning percentage drop in NBA history. So, and they didn't have Kevin Love around at that point. So, if if there's something similar, then maybe that affects our LeBron MVP calculus even if the Lakers aren't in the top 4 or 5 teams in the West. Sure. Yeah, John, to that point, I think this year from an MVP year sets up very similarly for LeBron to the years that Steve Nash won it back to back with Phoenix. He came to a Phoenix team we had basically sold out the year before to get to the point where we were far enough under the tax and really we were attempting to sell the team at that point. So Robert Sarver bought into the team after we had completely swept the books financially and we had a very young nucleus that wasn't winning games yet, but we had Joe Johnson and Amari Stoudemire, who I would say are probably more accomplished at this point than any of the young players with the Lakers, but we had those young guys. We had Sean Marion, who was significantly more accomplished than those Laker players at this point. And Steve was added to that group, and we made a quantum leap, both in terms of style. We sort of took the league by storm because the offense Mike was running, but we made a quantum leap and wins. And I think this Laker team could similarly benefit from LeBron's presence because if Brandon Ingram takes a jump and becomes even 70% of the player that everyone hopes he will be, 
LeBron will get an inordinate amount of the credit for that, and the team will have to win substantially more to go along with that. So I think you're right. I, I think that impact could really be seen this year because everybody expects Houston to be good. Everybody expects Golden State to be good. So other than LeBron, the only other person I look at as being in that position to get that kind of a bump is Kawhi Leonard. But Toronto won 59 games last year. So what love will Kawhi get for that? Yeah, that's a great point. It, and, and to your point, but the other question, which player is most likely to have a breakout season Ingram and Kuzma both got multiple votes in that question, and I think that speaks to LeBron a little bit. Like, all right, these guys are going to be playing against next to LeBron. One, they're going to take a step forward, and and two, people are going to take notice of these guys. Not that people weren't paying attention to the Lakers in the past, but... Different kind of focus, though, with LeBron on that team, of course. Yeah, the idea with that... No, but the idea, basically, that these guys could take real steps forward um playing alongside him and i think that's going to be maybe one of the more fascinating things to watch this year i agree with that and i also i'm really struck by you know they come one right after the other here but when we talked about the mvp thing it's a different answer than you're building a team today so look at the who's the best small forward in the nba category Giannis is third in that with three percent which i think means he got one vote Who's the best power forward in the NBA? Giannis is fourth in that with 10%, which probably means he got, what, three votes? So LeBron, meanwhile, is listed as the best small forward, the second best power (laughs) forward. Anthony Davis is listed as the best power forward and the best center. You don't want to start your team with one of those guys? <laughs> I mean, I am, so, uh, I am now taking suggestions on how to better word those questions <laughs> as far as uh, positions in this league. I don't know whether to do it like point guard and then... John, I think the way you do it is perfect because it serves almost as a, from a research standpoint, it shows you the lack of connectedness and thought sometimes. Again, who would you build a team around from scratch today? If you really wanted to get into it and somebody wanted to make a compelling argument to me that Jason Tatum is the guy because he's currently on rookie scale, (laughs) you could convince me that's a meaningful argument. And so it's just fascinating when you take into account all of the different levers how you don't say LeBron James is an answer to almost every question. <laughs> it's hard for me to figure out. The other thing with the positions is sometimes I feel like a guy will be like, he'll be filling it out. They'd be point guard, all right, Steph Curry. Shooting guard, all right, James Harden. Small forward, LeBron. Power forward, hmm, I got to put Duran on there. He's great, you know. And then it's like, center, uh, let's see. I didn't get to put Giannis on this thing yet. Let me put Giannis at center. <laughs> like, you know, I feel like there's some of that. Like, oh, I don't. You know, I just want to put the best players on this thing and not think too hard about what position they play. Yeah. One of the questions and responses that had me stumped, you know, and I thought, wow, what a difficult question for a, a GM to answer compared to what a fan or just a regular person would look at. Because a lot of these are obvious responses to me. Like these are the responses you would get in general from anybody who's paying close attention to the league. The rookies in the international category. I thought was really interesting. And this one cracked me up. The best international player not in the NBA. And I thought, man, that's the question, Griff, that you got to let your international scouts answer. Because I guarantee you there's some GMs who are not as well-versed, obviously, in the international landscape as others. But that's something you have to be watching intently to really gauge who's the best international player not in the NBA. I was surprised to see Sergio Lowe 
and Shaved and Jan Vesely, guys who have, you know, had a cup of coffee or, or spent some time in the NBA, be as prominent on those lists as, as they were. Well, and this is the one somebody was having a good time with this because they also <laughs> gave a vote to Andrew Bogut. Yes. So <laughs> I heard he's dominating like the Australian. This wasn't somewhere. something where people are going to be very revealing of truth. Right. You know, last year, Luka Doncic being where he was, I think, speaks to the fact that everybody knew Mm -hmm. Luka Doncic. But in all likelihood, the best international player not in the NBA right now wasn't even mentioned, unless you count R.J. Barrett, who's certainly going to be a very high-level player, and he's Canadian, so he'll be a high-level collegiate player. But in all likelihood, the best international player was intentionally hidden on this (laughs) because you don't want to bring it to light. You don't want it to appear in this article because your international scout might have a beat on somebody you hope nobody else is hip to yet. Right, right. And I believe Yule, both Sergio Yule, the Rockets have his rights. I still think, I think they still have his rights. And Nando DiColo, I think like Toronto still has his like restricted yep. rights. Yep, so you I can put those two correct. guys on there and not work and like not, you know, know that you don't even have control of that guy anymore. So it's, it's just interesting. I wonder how much of these responses is subterfuge. You know, how much of it is the herd rolling one way and how much of it is, mm, let's not play all our cards here. We don't, you know, even if it's, they know it's anonymous. I'm sure, like you said, Griff, some people don't want their intel getting out there into the atmosphere. And for very good reason. It, again, I, I don't even know. It's not the anonymous aspect of it that would concern you. It's the, it's published aspect. It will say <laughs> others receiving votes, X, Y, Z. Yeah. And you don't want that out there. And then some some other team's going to send all their scouts to to that guy's games now more than they would have if it wasn't on the survey. Is that what you're saying? Well, in part, don't get me wrong. I don't think this is commonplace, and I don't think there are a lot of people that are going to play it necessarily that close to the vest. But right this moment, it's hard for me to tell you the runaway answer to this question. There are a couple 16-year-olds that are going to play first division European basketball next year. Both of those kids have a chance to be really good. If I'm a team, would I tell you which one of them I believe will be better? Probably not. So I think that's the thing for me that's really interesting about this question. is It's hard to say unequivocally that I would be honest because I just don't want it to appear in print. It's <laughs> a great answer. But, but Sergio Ewell is a really good player. But let's just put, <laughs> put, put that out there. He is for sure a really good player, and that's what makes it easy because all you have to do is look at the final four every year or look at the Euro League all all Euro League performers and pick one of those guys and go, yeah, he's the answer. <laughs> I think there were some pretty obvious responses on the GM survey, but one that I thought was really up to interpretation, Chu, was the most promising young core. In the the Sixers, Celtics are mentioned prominently obviously, but the Bulls and the Suns. And I thought that was interesting. Phoenix's group has been called a lot of things. Promising? I don't know that outside of like very intense basketball circles, if people look at the young players that have assembled down in Phoenix and look at them as promising. Griff, I'm wondering what you look at when you're talking about a young group of players and how they fit together. What does Phoenix's young core look like to you in terms of the potential and maybe the growth that they could undergo over the next couple of seasons? Assuming Booker is healthy. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of the reason everybody embraces them to such a huge degree because of all of the young teams that are listed there and of all of the guys that you could potentially lump into the category of best young core and all of that, I think Book is the one who you could unequivocally say 
if he's healthy, has the potential to be a number one best player on a playoff caliber team. Now, in Philadelphia and Boston's case, they've already done it. They've yeah. proven it. So uh, sort of the, you know, the next tier, those teams that have not proven it, whose young guys have not shown unequivocally that they're on that level, I, I do think it's pretty revealing Chicago and Phoenix are where they are. It speaks very highly of how people look at their drafting. But in the Phoenix situation specifically, Seku, I'm really intrigued by Booker, Josh Jackson, and Aiton, obviously. So that's a trio you can look at and feel really good about, mm -hmm. and you can be excited about watching. What they don't have that's really mind-numbing when you look at their depth chart is they don't have anything revealing a starting point guard. Right. And so what they're going to do this year when you – or resembling, rather, a starting point guard – when you look at that team, what they're going to do in all likelihood is they're going to play Devin Booker in a James Harden sort of ball-dominant play creator role without regard for position. And so that impact upon the other prospects will be really profound. So you might actually get more out of Book and less out of the other two pieces of the nucleus, by way of example. Yeah. Whereas if you look at Chicago's group, their core of young kids all fits together pretty well positionally. And the likelihood is if they're healthy, they're able to grow together because they're going to be on the floor together in much the same way that Golden State's nucleus, when they were young, of Curry, Thompson, and Draymond Green, grew and evolved. They learned how to win together because they were on the floor together all the time. Didn't think about it like that. Griff, I'm curious, as you step back from a role as a general manager in the NBA and, and get a chance to clear your head a little bit and kind of survey the landscape and kind of recalibrate and approach this from an analyst perspective. And, and by the way, if you haven't paid attention, Griff does a great job on NBA TV and everywhere else, breaking down the game. Um, Shu and I pass texts back and forth some nights when you're on comment on the comments you are making on the set so we value your opinion highly i especially like it when he gets into it with isaiah that's my favorite. <laughs> well that's because you've gotten into it with isaiah before shoot <laughs> that's true good point two non-players love the opportunity to argue with a hall of famer I'm, I'm no different than anybody else shout out to isaiah thomas by the way one of our faves Griff, what is it that you look back at now and recognize was more difficult in team building? Is it the human chemistry in trying to figure out how those pieces fit or the analytics and the numbers crunching and the data that has to be compiled to make those pieces fit? I, I've always wondered, with coaches historically pushing back on that, I think they've all come around to the, the idea now that the analytics only serve to reinforce what you already know as a coach and they work hand in hand but which part was more difficult or seems more difficult to you now figuring out the human chemistry or diagnosing the data and how that affects that chemistry between the players well i think among those two choices i would say the human aspect of it the mm -hmm. team building part of it the art that goes beyond the numbers and, and sort of gives meaning to the numbers i think analytics are something that's leaned on too heavily in some circles and maybe not enough in others. If you're a coach that's only using data to prove yourself right, then you're doing yourself a great disservice. If you're a front office that's using data to make every decision, you're similarly making a big error. I think it's all of it. It's, it's recognizing that it's all just a part of it. It's all a piece of the process. None of it can represent the answer alone. But I think when you look at data, data is only as useful as the questions you ask it to answer. And those questions come from highly skilled 
extremely experienced basketball people asking the right questions. If you're not asking the right questions, the data won't reveal very much to you. So I think coming at this from a, a spirit of intellectual curiosity is truly meaningful for coaches, front offices alike. Your ability to impact coaching decisions has everything to do with how good your analytics team is at speaking the coaching language and still translating those numbers to them in a way that the coach values what it's revealing and you use it. Well, to a greater degree, that's all part of human chemistry also. So I think far and away the most challenging part of team building is building a family. The whole idea is you need to build one that loves each other enough to tell each other what they need to hear at every part of your franchise. And it can't just be one answer. You have to be open-minded to the fact that it could be something you're not expecting. That's a great way to put it. I was I was wanting to end, finish up here on the Hangtime Podcast. David Griffin joining us, uh, Sekou Smith here at headquarters in Atlanta, John Schumann in New Jersey. This notion that, you know, there's going to have to be a transition at some point, a changing of the guard. You know, contrary to popular belief, LeBron is not going to play till he's 75 at this level. I think at some point we'll see a dip, you know, in his play. Do you look at the next era of the NBA, Griffin? I know we've always been able to kind of forecast what comes next. But with Durant and Curry in that era of player interrupting LeBron's era, if you will, and, and kind of moving into a dominant role with the Warriors, how do we forecast what comes next when there's so many players in this pipeline from, say, 30 into their early 20s, 22-year-old players. We've, we've normally had a, a situation where there were tentpole players who were coming that we could say this guy's going to dominate for the next how many years. I don't know if there's another LeBron-type player that I see in this next group that sticks out to me as the one dominant guy. Well, part of that's because he's just a freak of nature. Right? <laughs> you don't get those very often. Yeah. To some degree, it's like saying, I don't see another Wilt Chamberlain in the pipeline. Like, no, you probably don't because he's just, he's that special physically. I think your point, though, about how you forecast where it goes, I think this speaks again to the human element that's so difficult with team building is you've also got to really touch on motivation. You know, our league is, is littered now with incredibly talented, very highly paid players that may or may not have the makeup to truly want to be great because they already have money and celebrity. What buttons do you push to bring out their greatness? And if you haven't gotten the ones that are all about the right things, who eat and sleep winning, then you're going to have a very difficult time building a championship nucleus in this league now. We've got so many kids. So Book and Carl Anthony Towns both, Devin Booker and Carl, both received full max contracts from teams without ever proving they can be the reason your team wins games. You know, I know when we gave Amari Stoudemire full max in Phoenix, I believe we were coming off of 30 wins at the time. And you're certainly going to pay him because you don't want to lose him. But in the era of one and done, we've seen so many times where guys are getting max contracts without proving they're winners. So it makes projecting the future of the league in terms of who's the next Golden State, who's the next LeBron, very difficult because those entities are all about winning. And now it's really hard to decipher who's about that and who's about the things that come from winning. And I think as, as Twitter and social media of all kinds has become more prevalent, I think celebrity of that ilk 
has jaded guys in a way that it wouldn't have otherwise. I think we're talking about monopoly money now that these guys are making. It makes it very difficult for coaches to have the amount of leverage they need to have to blend all of these talents together. So I think to some degree it's it's hard to know without having a really good sense of the human element of those players. Good point. David Griffin, we've taken up so much of your time and we appreciate it. I know you're super busy as always, but we appreciate just listening to your perspective and, and getting a chance to chop it up with you. I'll see you on the set at some point, I'm sure, this season. I'm looking forward to another wild ride on NBA TV's uh, game time set. John Schumann, you and Griff, this is like the dream matchup. I've been wanting us for all season, last season. Griff, I was telling Shu that I got to get you two on the podcast together. I wanted to hear the back and forth between two of the smartest guys I know. So I appreciate you taking some time. Well, right. I appreciate that. John is radically smarter than I am. I'm just far <laughs> more willing to run my mouth. <laughs> the other thing that Seku... Look forward to being on the set with you as long as they don't make us do a stand-up next to Brendan Haywood. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting tired of people asking me if, if I come up to Brendan's pant pocket. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was actually given some really important insight. If I wear more tailored European cut suits, I won't look quite as dumpy next to Brendan Haywood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to steal that advice. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, we appreciate it. Thanks, Griff. We'll talk to you thanks, soon. Thanks, guys. All right, man. John Schumann, again, thanks for taking your time. I know we've been grinding you lately. All the uh, division previews we did, and I know you're super busy. Take that brain out. Give, put it on the shelf. Give it like a 20-minute break here till we Let's get back. Get a little break. Saturday night, 8 p.m., go Hokies. <laughs> that will be my break from, from work. No doubt about we'll... it. We'll be back next week, as always, to continue to you know set the table for the 2018-19 season in the NBA. Check out John Schumann's One Team, One Stat. That series continues to roll along on NBA.com. And be sure to subscribe to Hang Time on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for episodes all season long. Don't forget to leave a review. And shout out, of course, to our producer, John Hartzell, behind the glass, always putting the show together, making it sound good. We will see you right here next week on the Hang Time Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Hangtime Podcast, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for a new episode every Thursday this season. And as always, say kuna matata.